Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, episode 28. I'm Tiernan Duyev and this week, unlike Mother Teresa, I've not been recognised as a saint by the Catholic Church, despite once burping, farting and sneezing all at the same time. And I once saw a fat squirrel eat a Cornetto ice cream like a human would. I mean, if that's not enough for sainthood, what has a guy got to do? What, be Catholic in the first place? Oh, ah, no, well, I'll, I'll skip it then. Thanks. Uh, Parliament restarts this week, but sadly not in the way where you press the off switch for five seconds because it's all broken and you need to start again. Uh, More in the way that MPs are returning from their holidays, all refreshed from seeing what things other countries do badly with brand new ideas of how to implement that in the UK. There's two weeks of discussing various bills in the Commons and Lords before all the party conferences start. You know, the Conservatives Party conference one where they all cheer about how much money they're making themselves before they probably take a ton of expensive drugs and swap keys. The Labour one where they'll be holding workshops on the best ways to score own goals with the dance floor open 24-7 for fights to happen on. And the Lib Dem one where it'll probably just be eight of them in a scout club shed arguing about whose turn it is to buy the rich teas. The Green Party's annual conference has already taken place and the new joint leadership was announced of John Bartley, the party's work and pension secretary, and former leader Caroline Lucas, which proves they really do like to recycle everything. Part of the big news this past weekend was that Keith Baz stepped down as being chair of the Home Affairs Select Committee, a parliamentary group probing vice and drugs, and that's because he was found to be very much probing vice and investigating drugs, thanks to an undercover video. The video showed him hiring male escorts and telling them, let's get this party started, presumably not speaking about an exciting new way to reboot Labour. Oddly, Keith Vaz's way of hiding his identity from the escorts was to say that his name was Jim and that he was a washing machine salesman. Not a great choice of job, considering his lack of being able to spin this story about his dirty laundry and how clearly he's already been hung out to dry. And the Labour leadership contest continues to bore the shit out of everyone. Uh, Jeremy Corbyn will be holding a press conference with UB40 this week because he obviously wants to target middle-of-the-road 40-somethings who probably wear shorts regardless of weather and people who program the playlists for students' unions' 80s nights. 
Meanwhile, Owen Smith has decided to carefully apologise for a tweet he sent that suggested Nicola Sturgeon shut her gob by saying, it was just banter. Yeah, great excuse, mate. Nice one there, Owen. I mean, sexism's obviously fine if it's just classic bants between you and your 42,000 followers, eh? I assume it's just weeks before Owen Smith does a press conference wearing boot polish on his face and doing concerning accents and backs it all up and assumes he gets away with it just by shouting, just joshing, mate. Anyway, thanks for downloading, listening and maybe even subscribing to this podcast if you're a total champion of the people. Or more likely, like me, have far too much time on your hands and so can click endless buttons on the iTunes. As always, if you do fancy giving this show a review on iTunes, please, please do. And also, here's a new plea for you. If you fancy telling someone you know and like about this podcast and persuading them to listen to it, that would be great. Uh, Or fancy telling someone you don't like, but you want to punish them by making them waste phone space by downloading a whole partly political broadcast episode anyway, that will also do. I mean, I really have no idea if you actually listen to this or you just click Mark has played. Uh, So ultimately, to me, it just looks like the show is more popular and I'm very happy to live with that delusion. Also, uh, as I banged on about last week, my brand new stand-up comedy special, The World is Full of Idiots, Let's Live in Space, uh, is now available for download or streaming at my website, tnndoyeb.co.uk, and it costs about three quid. Um, The website VHX that I host it on has decided they only do things in dollars now, as if to mock our stupid Brexit ways. Uh, And, you know, so I think it's around three pounds. But it is over an hour of jokes about space, politics, and one particularly awful pun, and there is absolutely nothing in it about the Labour leadership. So uh, if that hasn't sold it to you, nothing will. Um, On today's show, I have a chat with the author of Stitched Up and campaigner Tansy Hoskins about the politics of the fashion industry. I'm going to be looking at how G4S sound like a romantic carving in a tree, but are actually just shits. And there's also, you know, loads of other stuff. But first... Junior doctors have called off another strike next week against the imposed new contract because the Greater Medical Council has stated that this strike will cause patients to suffer. Though I suppose at least this would have only been five days of patients suffering, whereas the new imposed contract might cause patients to suffer for years. The junior doctors haven't yet suspended further walkouts, mainly because Health Secretary and flattened emu Jeremy Hunt is still being a massive bellend. No change there. Prime Minister Theresa May has urged doctors to stop playing politics because, you know, I guess it's not a very fun game to play if the other team are actually trying to win too. And meanwhile, Jeremy Hunt compared himself to Nye Bevan, the founder of the NHS, which is a really bizarre comparison. Unless Hunt means he's the sort of negative world reverse version of Nye Bevan, who will take a world with an NHS in it and successfully destroy it. Once again, the problem is that talks really need to restart between the British Medical Association, who are professional doctors, and Jeremy Hunt, who's professional at hurting things. And how are you meant to heal wounds when one side of the table seems to assume prodding them constantly with a pointed stick will help? Impossible. A few bills are being discussed in Parliament this week. Uh, There is the Investigative Powers Bill, you know, Theresa May's really terrifying baby that wants to use its terrifying baby hands to get easier access to your iPhone. What kind of scary baby is that? What kind of baby can control the internet? Uh, That bill is now in its penultimate stages. Um, It is very likely that the House of Commons are going to pass the bill because, let's face it, none of them really understand how the internet works. They have civil servants for that. 
there is the finance bill, uh, the remains of sacked lifeless automaton George Osborne's reign as Chancellor. And that looks like it's going to be pushed through quite easily, resulting in a sugar tax that will mostly punish everyone in the UK by making us see Jamie Oliver jump up and down like a twat more often. Uh, fuel duty will continue to be frozen because if we're going to drive forward into irreversible climate change, we may as well do it cheaply. And capital gains tax cuts are going to happen because there's no better way to help a housing crisis than to make sure it's more affordable for landlords to buy even more of the properties that there aren't enough of. And lastly, there is the Protect Cultural Property in Times of War Bill, which is the UK's chance to sign up to an international bill from 1954 that gives armed forces a duty to not attack cultural property. Part of the bill makes it an offence to deal with cultural property that has been illegally exported from occupied territory. And suddenly, you see why, despite it being created in 1954, Britain has held off signing it until now. Yes, we do rather like the British Museum, don't we? Anyway, it'll probably get signed uh, this week, and should war break out, I guess we can all hide in the House of Commons, feeling both safe but sad that it won't be a target in so many ways. According to a YouGov survey across Europe, very right-wing people are more likely to be satisfied with their sex lives. I mean, I guess this is because they're constantly fucking things over without giving those affected anything they want, and I reckon they particularly enjoy being on top. In Britain, the survey showed that very right-wing people were also happier than left-wing people too, though that wasn't the case across Europe. Probably because in the continent they don't always let them win like we do here. Also, never forget, ignorance is bliss. So, if you'd like to be happier and feel more satisfied in your love life, maybe the trick is to go all right-wing and adopt a free market philosophy to sex. And by that, I mean pay for it. As someone who regularly wishes they'd set up a service to send you the same pair of jeans every 12 months, just with an extra inch on the waist, fashion isn't something that I think about very often. And apart from the anti-fur trade movement that protests against the strange desire of rich people to adorn their bodies with the carcasses of small mammals like a walking taxidermist display, I've naively never thought of the fashion industry as one rife with politics. But it turns out that when David Bowie sang It's Big and It's Bland Full of Tension and Fear, he was correct with exploitation of workers all over the shop, or, to be more precise, the sweatshop. And what with there being many a fashion week about to kick off, I thought it would be great to ensure that any coverage you see will be viewed through the filter of politically aware angst. And so this week, I had a chat to Tansy Hoskins. Tansy is a journalist, activist and author of Stitched Up, the anti-capitalist book of fashion, and she regularly writes pieces on the dark side of being chic. And I don't just mean that because dark chocolate brown is in this season. I have no idea what that means. I just Googled it. And now I'm hungry. Anyway, I met up with Tansy in a noisy theatre cafe. So as per every week... Excuses, excuses! Yes, the excuses this week. There is some noise of people pretending to be cultured, but probably not really having a clue what plays are about to see, uh, drinking the sort of coffees that have very, very silly names, and every now and then the announcement for the show starting comes on. But I think, to be honest, that just adds drama to our chat. <laughs> Get it? No, sorry. In all honesty, it's really not that bad. I just like the excuses jingle. So, here's Tansy. Um, I think it's fair to say that when a lot of people think about politics, you think about political areas, they think about like foreign policy or welfare, 
the fashion industry probably isn't an immediate area that people go to uh, as a political area. Why is it something that people should be more aware of? Why is it such a, a political, a politically fueled um, industry? Um, well, people should definitely be uh, engaging with the fashion industry and thinking about it because, I mean, for a start, it's one of the biggest industries in the world. Um, one of the most profit-making industries in the world. Uh, if you look at the top 10 for the richest people in the world, quite a few of them are from the fashion industry. So you have things like telecoms, you have Bill Gates, and then you know, and then you have the owner of Zara, you know, who's made his, really? yeah, who's made his fortune off like hair clips and leggings and, and crap like that. Um, so you know, and then, and then you have the like the labour rights. Like the you know the working rights of people in the fashion industry right through from workers in Bangladeshi factories who are you know um, and we saw what happened with Rana Plaza where 1,138 people were killed you know right through to people working in the shops here um, you know working in the shoe shops working in the in the clothing shops getting treated abominably you know the um, the thousands of BHS workers who now don't have a job because of, of Philip Green um, you know, and then there's the there's the environmental impact of the fashion industry so you've got the Aral Sea in um, over by Uzbekistan drying up because of the co like cotton production uh, you've got the chemical content of the clothes that we're all wearing um, so it's a hugely political um, subject so it sounds like it sounds like the fashion industry is fueling a lot of problems yes definitely definitely i mean i guess as well even like in terms of the the visual culture of the society that we live in so um you know in terms of how like we're taught to think about our bodies like the fashion industry is not just about what clothes you should wear it's about how you should look you know and what your body should look like and whether you've got the wrong or the right body and you know whether you're uh, like whether your skin is the right colour, even you know, even down to stuff like that. Like, you know, when was the last time you saw a black model on the front page of a fashion magazine? Like, it so rarely happens because they, like, you know, black people are not considered to be aspirational by the fashion industry. Like, it's you know, and that's the visual culture that contributes to a lot of racism in our society. It's like, you know, it's, it's a very problematic industry. And it seems like, obviously, then it's a large part of the problem that people don't see it as causing those problems. People seem to see fashion as, uh, I don't know, as, as a, just something they consume, as something they enjoy. Uh, I, you know, I don't know many people that kind of are like, well, fashion, that needs to be stopped. You know, I haven't seen many big campaigns against it. Yeah, I mean, I think it's also because we're taught to be really passive with, the, with, with what we consume with the fashion industry. Like... Um, you know, even like even a few decades ago, we would have been much more in touch with the clothes that we were wearing in terms of knowing what they were made by, like like what they were made of. We might even have, well, as a, as a woman, I might even, I might have made my clothes. Right. Um, you might not, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> but but you know, like we'd have been much more. There's a much, and now there's no link between the makers and the consumers. Like clothes just appear in the shops, fully formed. You know, I couldn't tell you how my shoes were made. I have no idea. I couldn't tell you how my shirt was made. Like, I don't know, you know, I don't know anything right. about that, like, that side of fashion. So you're just taught to kind of consume and not think about it. That's quite interesting because the, the world seems to have had a bit of a turn on its head, like for food. You know, food now we're all, how is this made? Is this organically farmed? But no one seems to care about clothes in the same way. Yeah, I think it's just much more, it's a much more mystified process. Um, and I think, you know, I, th I think that the cotton is grown a lot, you know, far away from like, a, a country like Britain. 
the, you know, we, we don't do tours around sort of chemical companies to see what dyes, you know. Yeah. Um, and there's, you know, there's also like a huge vested interest in keeping all this stuff shrouded in mystery. Like they don't, you know, they don't even, they don't want you to see the processes. They don't even want you to see the processes of making the advert you know what the model has been through you know the the, the, the eating disorders the low, like the interns who aren't being paid the photoshopping all of it you know you don't get to see any of that you just get presented with a sort of perfect image that you're supposed to aspire to um, and it's because it, there have been i mean i sort of said earlier i haven't seen many campaigns but i think there were well there have been over maybe last 10 years quite a lot against sweatshops mm -hmm. and quite a lot of campaigns uh, against a sort of cheap labor but particularly sort of like southeast asian countries yes um has any of that worked <laughs> i mean it doesn't I, 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 all those campaigns i remember being on you know channel four doing a big thing about it once i've never seen any follow-up has any of that changed have things got better for the fashion industry well there was so um in april 2013 there was the the rana plaza factory collapse which was an eight-story building in dhaka in bangladesh um where which um essentially the the central pillars cracked and it collapsed in on itself and in about 90 seconds uh, 1138 people were killed and thousands more were left uh, permanently disabled um, and, and mentally scarred as well. Um, now that created a huge backlash that didn't just stay within the fashion industry because it was one of the biggest industrial disasters of you know of of hu in human history, and that did have an effect because that created this thing called the Bangladesh Accord on Building and Fire Safety, right. which basically means that um, there's there have to be minimum standards within the factories that the Accord covers. And uh, dozens and dozens of, of global brands signed up to that Accord. So there have been things like that which have been very positive. Um, there have also been, I mean, the main, the main time that you get progress on things like the minimum wage is when you have massive strikes by Bangladeshi workers. Right. So when you've seen, you know, when you've seen sort of thousands of Bangladeshi workers come out on the streets, shut down the factories, march to the bosses' doors, that kind of thing, then you get um, then you get big increases in the minimum wage and you know and, and, and slight raises in standards. But oh yeah, overall it's still a very like it's it's a very horrible industry. Surely part of that as well is that people constantly think cheap clothes are a bargain here. You know, Primark is is huge uh, because people think it's great to get cheap clothing. But I guess every time people aren't spending enough on clothing, the people making that clothing aren't getting enough for it. Does it work like that? Or? Yeah, I mean, but it's all. But I tend not to sort of blame it on the consumers. I very much think sure. that the ball is in the. Um, uh, is in is in the corporation's court. I think you know we should be asking them like why are there any clothes on the market that have been made um, you know in, in in hugely unethical fashions. You know like why is there's a scandal recently like in the, this last week where H and M have been accused of using children in the factories in Myanmar uh, and so in, you know and stuff like that. So. You know, it's difficult because clothing has become so linked to um, like modernity and competency and stuff that people are you're kind of forced to keep up with fashion, even if yeah. you don't you know even if you don't want to. And and also the clothes that Primark and H and M and everyone sells have um, decay built into them, like they don't last. So you know you buy you you go to Primark buy the clothes, like a couple of weeks later you know they're they're falling apart. 
like the, the sweaters have gone bobbly, the t-shirts are full, you know, like it's hopeless. So then you have to go and consume again. Sure. Um, so it actually creates more of a market. Yeah, and, and also like in order to buy more expensive clothes, you have to have the ability to save. And a lot of people, you know, since the economic crisis in particular, people don't get to the end of the month with anything to sure. save. They get sure. to the end of the month having to go to loan sharks and all those like loan companies and stuff. Yeah. So, so um, they should, companies should still be able to provide decent cheap clothing but with but while paying the uh paying their workers a reasonable amount in other countries that yeah. should be doable yeah i theory. mean yeah the shareholders and the ceos and the richest men in the world have to take you know, have to take a cut like have yeah. to take or they have to take a hit on More their yeah. yeah like one less super yacht for philip green and yeah. you know and then the bangladeshi workers don't die horribly like, it's not that hard no <laughs> no. Hard. no 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 and um, it was really interesting you mentioned earlier as well that you're saying um you know, because there's racial issues in, in fashion. Um, and there's something we've sort of seen recently uh, in France with like the Burkini band, which I know is because of the, you know, they did that because of the attack in Nice. But, you know, do you think that the Western culture of fashion creates a sort of bias against people that don't conform to it or that, that have to dress differently for religious reasons, you know, uh, or don't look the way that they should? Yeah, I mean, without like without a shadow of a doubt, and um, I mean the like the meddling of in like in women's clothes and particularly in Muslim women's clothes has been going on for centuries. You know, you've had like you had the like the British colonial regimes in places like Egypt. You know, meddling in in, in Egyptian women's clothes and you know whether they should or shouldn't be able to wear the headscarf. Like really? in the end, the eighteen hundreds and things like this. Wow. So, and I think it's it's very much linked to an idea of making people. Uh, seem like they're less than you so you know if you can kind of say like oh you know like you're like if you're muslim you're somehow like uh, inferior to us then you can start like treating people how you want to treat them you know it's a good excuse to go and like bomb other countries like oh you know we're bringing you into the 21st century you know we're civilizing you yeah um you know look at the clothes you wear like we need to come and save you kind of thing and i think sure. there's a like that's that's partly what's going on in France as well. It's kind of um, the French authorities being like, you know, we're the civilizing influence. Therefore, we can treat this section of society however we want. Sure. You know, by making women strip on beaches surrounded by armed men, which is just horrible. It's ludicrous. Isn't ludicrous. It? Uh, you know, and I think many people point out that those men were also all wearing black, black <laughs> uniforms, completely covered head to toe uniforms. Yeah, totally. And and, and far more threatening. Yeah. Fact, you know, way more threatening than women yeah. having a nice time. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, totally. But I suppose fashion's always had that kind of power thing. Has it, you know, I mean, I remember being at school where if you had the wrong trainers, everyone would laugh and point yeah, at you. Yeah, devastating. Uh, which is the most incredible marketing tool uh, trainer companies could ever have. Um, and I think I guess the same with people in suits and you know that whole kind of if you wear a suit you're you're more powerful than yes. people around you. Yeah, totally, totally. But I guess in a in a in a weird way, like suits are also oppressive. I mean, you know, like millions of people having to go to work in offices wearing like stupid clothes that they would never normally yeah, wear. Yeah, yeah, that's um, it. You know, and like like ties around your neck and shirts that you're boiling hot in this kind of weather and stuff like the whole thing is stupid yeah it really. sort of becomes an oppressive uniform doesn't yeah it, rather than a, yeah an individual outfit yeah. yeah it's always very interesting well i also always like the kind of uh, 
you know, when you, you, you think of the, the problems of the world, you can always blame it on men in suits. And, yeah. and it's pretty much always right. It always feels like it. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's true. Yeah, like it's not women in hijabs causing mass warfare and... No, you know, no. It's, yeah, it's the dudes in suits. Definitely, yeah. definitely. Um, I read you, you did an article recently, um, which is about... Uh, it was about the the rise of sort of using machines in some of the Southeast Asian factories. We we had um, a guest on this podcast a little while ago called Asha Dresner who talked to us all about the robotization of the workforce and how terrifying that is becoming. I think he said it's like twenty percent of, of mid level jobs since the eighties have gone to robots now. Um, how much could machines affect the fashion industry then? Do you think this is a change that we're going to see coming in fairly soon? Uh, yeah, I think this is. This is kind of the. Uh, is this, this is a slight. This is almost. I, I want to use the word apocalypse. I mean, this this is going to be as big as when the industrial revolution brought machines into the fashion industry and put all the um, you know all the home workers and the and the sort of skilled trades people just out of business. You know, so and shoemakers who just could not keep up with a machine that could suddenly make 700 pairs of shoes in a day. Um, I mean, this, yeah, this is going to be just as big, if not bigger. Um, and it's, I mean, you, uh, Adidas have said that they're going to open a, a robot factory, a Sobot factory really? in um, Germany in 2017. Wow. Yeah, it's only, it's not going to be making like a huge number of shoes, but it's, it's the beginning, it's the beginning of a big change. Like, uh, absolutely. And um, I mean, the thing I think we need to remember is that this is a massively gendered issue as well. In, in places like Cambodia and Bangladesh and China, it's women, it's young women who have been often like, like weirdly sort of liberated from domestic servitude by jobs in factories. Right. And what is going, what is going to happen to them next? I think a lot of the time with automation, um, a lot, a lot of the time, um, sort of commentators on the left, if they're men, they're just like, oh, yeah, automation is going to be amazing. We just, right. got, you know, I can't wait for that. Like, well, it's, oh, it's going to be brilliant. The idea of robots doing stuff is robots inherently doing... cool. You know, we've had that years of sci-fi. I think it makes you go, <laughs> go the idea oh. of a robot serving me a cup of tea is what you, what yeah. you want, isn't it? Yeah. And it, it could it could be cool, but I think it's a massive question for for women in 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 industries like the shoe industry and the and the garment industry, and it's going to completely change, can just completely change those societies. And at the moment, I don't see how it's going to change it for the better. We'll be back with Tansy in a minute, but first. G4S, a company whose initials I assume stand for grasping and straws, are back in the political periphery again. Firstly, they were going to provide security for the Labour conference, but the party voted to boycott them earlier in the year. And then, as Labour approached them again recently to do the security again, G4S turned them down. I mean, to be fair, the only security threat to Labour at the moment will come from people who already have tickets to the conference and will probably be speaking on the main stage anyway. The press made out that this was an it's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync... 
things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Embarrassment to the Labour Party, but actually boycotting them in the first place was a very, very smart move, as G4S's record is more tarnished than a vampire weekend vinyl in a warehouse flat in Shoreditch. I mean, there is an entire Wikipedia page just for controversies surrounding G4S, which is the sort of thing that makes a security company sound as safe to use as a scheme to transfer money abroad by attaching it to a cod and chucking it in the Atlantic. This list of controversies ranges from the absolutely ridiculous, such as in 2011 when G4S staff attached an electronic tagging device to a one-legged criminal's false leg, allowing him to literally hop free. Then there are the more serious allegations of staff at a children's detention centre being on drugs or acting inappropriately towards young people. Then there's their involvement with Israeli prisons on the West Bank. The time that G4S had to pay back £109 million to the government uh, after having been found to be overcharging for tagging devices, many of the tags for people who weren't even being monitored at the time. The time G4S used immigrant detainees for cheap labour, paying some of them as little as £1 an hour. Uh, the time G4S had several accusations against the use of unreasonable and unacceptable force, ranging from when the G4S staff at the border agency tipped up a pregnant woman's chair while holding her feet, uh, when they chained a 79-year-old man to a G4S custody officer for eight days while in hospital after he suffered a heart attack, and of course when G4S staff caused the death of Angolian deportee Jimmy Mubenga after restraining him on a flight from Heathrow. Oh, and let's not forget the massive £284 million contract that G4S had to provide security for the London Olympic Games, only for it to turn out that they had nowhere near enough staff and over 3,500 army troops had to step in to help. Though, judging by all the other G4S controversies, it was probably a whole lot safer for everyone at the Olympics that a ton of their staff didn't turn up at all. So... You're probably thinking, really, not only were Labour right to decline the service of G4S, but really, everyone else should do. Which is why it might surprise you, though it's probably unlikely considering the way politics has been since 2010, that the second story G4S have been in these past couple of weeks is that the government are giving the running of its discrimination helpline to them. Yep. Though I suppose in some ways it does take one to know one, and who better to run a helpline to support those facing discrimination or human rights abuses than a company that has a human rights track record that looks like a song listing for Bashar al-Assad's greatest hits. The helpline was originally run by an independent group called the Equality and Human Rights Commission, but in 2011 a government review found it wasn't working, so it's handed to an outsourcer called Cytel and several charities. A report by the House of Lords found that that service from CITEL and other charities was also ineffective, and so the idea was to give it back to the EHRC and publicly fund it. 
But instead, Nicky, always looks like a pet who's lost its owner, Morgan, offered the contract out to tender. And guess who got it? Yep, Ghastly 4 Services. So why, oh why, oh why, oh why do G4S keep getting rewarded for their failure? Well, the one thing they can do is charge much cheaper rates than would be possible if it was done by local councils or government funding. G4S is losing up to £45 million on its contract for housing asylum seekers, and the company boasted that it saved the police force £6 million just by taking over its call centre in Lincolnshire. Presumably because based on their record, if you call 999 in Lincolnshire now, it'll just go through to a ringing phone in a yard with a dog barking at it. But G4S can do all this sort of thing because any loss that they make money-wise can be offset against profits from the rest of their worldwide business with them scamming huge tax breaks from the countries they operate in as a result. In 2012, G4S had over £300 million of government contracts in the UK, but they paid no corporation tax due to carrying over losses from their previous year. Not illegal, but yeah, pretty fishy indeed. And the G4S board consists of high-up people in companies like BAE Systems, BT, British American Tobacco, Deloitte, and the current chairman of G4S was a former advisor to albino baboon Boris Johnson. I would say you could imagine them like the evil heads of Spectre, doing what they like while others suffer, but the difference being that fictional baddies often have very decent security henchmen. So yeah, not hugely surprising that they're being given another massive contract paid for by taxpayers' money. Someofus.org currently have a petition to reverse the decision to hand over the discrimination helpline to this bunch, which you can find at their website, and I really recommend that you do go find it and sign up if you can, and share it with people. Um... And I guess if the petition isn't successful, well, I guess we can only hope that for the sake of the protection of human rights, none of G4S's staff ever turn up to man the lines. And now, back to Tansy. It's interesting you're saying that, that women in those countries have been liberated from kind of being stuck at, uh, stuck at home in a kind of more sexist role of a, of a housewife. So, in some ways, even though these factory conditions aren't good, it's done some good. I mean, I guess it's an incredibly tricky, nuanced situation, but... Yeah, no, I mean, but it, like, I, like, I think, you know, there's, there's, there's nothing sort of specifically wrong with factory work. The, the problem is when the brands drive wages and standards down and down and down, which is what we're seeing. Like, it's, it's a brilliant thing for, f- like, four million women in Bangladesh to suddenly be the, the breadwinners in their families and to suddenly have financial independence. That's, that's inherently, in my opinion, like a good thing. Yeah, the options are a yeah. good thing. But that doesn't mean that the brands and the factories should be able to treat them the way they can, the, 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 you know, in the way they do. Yeah. It doesn't mean that, um, that standards should be so low or that they should pay them, like, not even the minimum wage, and you know, let alone a sort of living wage. But I guess that's sort of an inherent problem worldwide, though, of just of exploited workers. I mean, is it, I suppose uh, the, the question I have with this is, because you, you said earlier that you don't blame the consumers or you wouldn't blame the consumers, but there must be... I mean, if, you, if, you, if it's not the consumer's fault, who, how, how are things going to change? You know, where does the pressure come from uh, for, for factories or for uh, businesses to, to change the way they employ people if it's not from people buying their product? Yeah, well, I mean, so it's, you know, it's partly like uh, trade unions in, in places like Bangladesh and, that, and people in countries like Britain and America supporting and doing everything they can to support those trade unions in Bangladesh. Um, that's you know because that that's really like that's just that's really where they can um 
sort of really put massive pressure on brands. But but certainly, I mean, here, you know, we have all the headquarters and we have all the shops. So campaign groups like Labour Behind the Label and War on Want, thing, you know, things like that, and trade unions in this country, you know, have a, have a good history of putting pressure on brands. But, you know, we, we also need to remember that, like, if you, um, there was a study done recently that would show that to double... Uh, double wages in the fashion industry would only add between like one and about three or four percent onto uh, onto the price of a garment. Is that all? Yeah, so it would be right. it would be a, an increase that consumers wouldn't really notice, like the labour costs sure. in in t-shirts or trainers or whatever is really low. Like, but so, so, so I mean, uh, uh, sorry for interrupting. Yeah, no, no. And, okay. and, and, and forgive me for being completely naive here, but then is is the only reason they don't do that because it they gain more profit at the top end? Of, yes. Is, is that the only reason? Yes. Because that seems so easy to do. Yeah, but yeah, it is. It's, it's it's incredibly easy. And I mean, if you compare if you compare the amount that you would need to sort of like create decent wages or to make all factories in Bangladesh up to like a, a good health and safety standard and then you compare it to you know to the profits that Walmart makes or that Zara makes or Primark makes like the two are just incomparable like it would be a tiny like yeah, it'd be like the spare change out of these billionaires pockets but they you know they don't do it because they want to keep making money. Their shareholders want to keep making money. You know, it's the buyer's jobs to like find the cheapest possible factories. Um, you know, capitalism is not geared towards making life like better for people. It's geared towards squeezing as much profit out of people as possible. So we yeah. don't get progressive change. And, and do you think, I mean, sort of uh, the theme that I've got from pretty much every single, this will be episode 28, every, pretty much every single podcast, you get the feeling that, uh, neoliberalism is affecting everything and yet it doesn't look like we're going to change that that political standpoint anytime soon it still seems like everything's driving for neoliberalism in the uk now with our current government that's going to be what pushes forward i mean do you think there is any hope for it's a change of that you're talking about trade unions but is, are there things that are actively happening now that look like they may be gaining movement in these areas um, well, I mean, somewhere like China, for example, um, you've had enormous strikes that have been like in the in the garment and shoe industries. There have been some of the biggest uh, social unrest in like recent Chinese history. So, there, you know, there are there are interesting things going on. There, you know, there's I mean, the um, I feel like the anti-globalization movement that was sort of really like targeting sweatshops and things like that kind of kind of got slightly replaced by the anti-war movement and I, you know I think we could it would be good to kind of start linking up struggles again yeah uh, it's around... possible to deal with more than one thing at a time isn't yeah, it I think that yeah people sometimes think they you know uh, maybe empathy is finite and I don't I don't believe it no is. definitely not no I know I, I, I agree and I mean I stuff like um like the work that's being done around the fast food industry uh, that you know that kind of thing is really interesting um so yeah, link like linking up, linking things up. But yeah, neo, I mean, neoliberalism does seem to be very pervasive. No matter no matter what it does, you know, no matter yeah. how many yeah. industrial incidents it causes or financial crises, it's yeah, it's still pervasive. Yeah, terrifying. Isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Um, so so is that slightly more positive? Then is, are there ways? Uh, and again going back to I know you said not to play with consumers but if, if people wanted to ethically shop because uh, something I've found in the past is you know 
there's for example there's one i seem to know maybe two vegan shoe shops or you know there's there seems to be very few places that are openly ethical are there ways for people to ethically be fashionable um i don't believe that there are any clothes out there that have been made without exploitation of people or planet right. i think because i mean so, like <laughs> Join a yeah, it's too yeah. cold. It's yeah. too cold <laughs> to do that. No, just because, like, you know, the supply chain, it starts off with, like, with, you know, with the, with agriculture, um, you know, the cotton fields of Uzbekistan or the cotton gins of India, you know, and then it goes through to like the chemical chemical um, factories, the garment factories, the freight. Like, it's you know, I, I don't think that there are clothes out there that are ethical as it were which is a controversial standpoint but at the same time i don't think there's anything wrong and in fact i think it's a good thing for people to try and make the most ethical choice that they can um obviously it's dependent again on how much money people have which sure. is the really depressing thing um but yeah if you've got a choice between something that has been made um but and you, you know you know the supply chain and there's an emphasis on limiting environmental destruction or or um having trade unions in the supply chain then yeah you should definitely sure. you know definitely buy that but at the same time the main thing is like to keep just keep pressure on brands like keep you know keep writing to brands when there's petitions for labor activists that have been locked up like make sure you like sign those and share those if there's if there's a demo out on your high street like try and literally try and go along and, and support yeah. it yeah and um you know because that's how like with the uh the 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 relatives of the people who died at rana plaza and the um the people who were really injured in rana plaza the only reason they got compensation was because of a, a worldwide campaign of people putting pressure on the brands brands wouldn't have paid compensation otherwise but you know yeah we you know in countries like britain and america and across europe you can put pressure on brands and that that, that to me is being an ethical consumer definitely it's like, i guess there's nothing more damaging to their brands than people thinking they're evil and they don't yeah associated with them yeah they're terrified of like people putting stickers on their shops and just like the really small things you know, they really like because it's, it's all about image with a brand it's not like it's not, you know like the clothes there's no substance really with um with high street clothes there's no like you know no like amazing design it's literally just it's image and if you start to like damage that they totally freak out so do you just uh, just sort of maybe think as well because you're talking about people it's best for people to try it if they can know where the clothes are coming from do you think internet sites and things like etsy and all that have, make things more ethical then because there seems to be a lot more sites now where you can buy your t-shirt from the artist that made it or seemingly so i don't know if the t-shirt itself comes from you know but does that make things better or uh, not i think it depends i think um yeah with some of those kinds of sites you do get more transparency because there's more written on a web page than there is just on a little shopping label sure. so yeah you can um you know and you can do more research on the internet as well and kind of you know find out uh what you know what people are saying about brands and you know and, and, and what might actually have happened so yeah i think i think the more information people have the better the more transparency there is the better sure. um but there's yeah there's there's not sadly there's not a silver bullet i you can't i can't say to people oh you know change your shopping habits and suddenly the world will be like 
you know, a different place, sure. which disappoints people, but... <laughs> yeah, it's a shame, isn't it? There's, no, there's no easy way out. No, it's like, you know... And so well, apart from your, your book, Stitched Up, where, where would you recommend people, if people are interested in more of the politics and the fashion industry, is there anything particularly you recommend that they read or perhaps listen to? Um, I'm always wary of plugging other podcasts on my podcast, but yeah. you know, is there anything in particular they should check out? Um, yeah, well, so other than Stitched Up, uh, my book. Yeah, which, feel free to plug. <laughs> yeah. Which... Um, yeah, which yeah, which people seem to like. Um, I would definitely recommend uh, Labour Behind the Label, um, and also War on Want, which are two um, British uh, NGOs who do a lot of work around uh, the garment industry. Um, Labour Behind the Label are doing a, a campaign with Chinese activists who are involved in the shoe industry. So that's really, you know, that's really interesting. For people in America, there's stuff like um, United Students Against Sweatshops. And they're like, they're pretty cool. They're like, you know, they're always causing trouble and stuff. So, you know, that kind of thing is good. Um, But also things like uh, people should check out like the the National Garment Workers Federation in Bangladesh. Um, They're on Twitter now. Um, And, you know, and then they're like every, it seems like every week they're leading demonstrations through um, through DACA and stuff. So, yeah, there's loads of things. Um, in terms of body image, um, there's um, anybody. Uh, there's all walks beyond the catwalk. Um, there's the, the, uh, the mo- like, there's a couple of like models, trade unions and things like that. There's loads. Like, there's, it's, that's, that's the positive thing about the fashion industry is that there's loads of, um, loads of good stuff happening in amongst all that the dark stuff excellent yeah good that's really good to hear and i suppose failing that just become a nudist in a warm country Huge thanks to Tansy for meeting and chatting with me. Uh, you can check out Tansy's website at tansyhoskins.org. That's T-A-N-S-Y-H-O-S-K-I-N-S. Or on Twitter at Tansy Hoskins. Tansy's book uh, is called Stitched Up, the Anti-Capitalist Book of Fashion and is available all good retailers and probably some less good retailers like Amazon as well. Next week, I'll be speaking to environmentalist Mark Avery about his campaign to ban driven grouse shooting. Uh, And as always, if you have a subject you'd like me to ask someone about or someone you'd like me to talk to in particular, please, please, please let me know via the Parpol Bro Facebook group, uh, the Parpol Bro Twitter account or partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. And I will try my best uh, to get them on the show. Well, the hot topic of Brexit is back in Parliament again. And what we can safely say after a whole afternoon of wheeling out charlatan after charlatan from the Leave team is that we are still no clearer on how or when Brexit will actually occur. All we know is, as both Theresa May and the DEXEU keep saying, Department of European Exit, uh, Brexit means Brexit. That's what they keep saying. And that's a bit odd to me because I was pretty certain that Brexit meant British exit, but apparently not. I guess the portmanteau that means that must be Brexit. Would that be it? Brexit? Who knows? Exit? Anyway, ultimately, we can assume that if Brexit doesn't mean that, whatever it does mean, it just means itself, like some sort of political rhetoric prime number. It seems more and more like the Department for Exit from the EU are actually hoping that just one night they'll go to bed and the next day we'll have woken up and find that we'll have Brexited all over the floor without any effort. 
David Davis, the Secretary of State for exiting the European Union, and a man who acts and looks like someone is constantly firing a hairdryer in the face of a very sad sheep, showed in the House of Commons that he completely maintains the delusion that Britain can stop free movement and somehow retain free trade and basically get whatever we want from the Brexit deal as though we're just a tantrum spoilt kids whose parents have given up, rather than an entire country that the rest of the world is increasingly unimpressed with. David Davis also stated, as May did last week, that there would be no second referendum because, let's face it, why give people the chance to be stupid twice? And that there would be no veto for Scotland, allowing it to stay in the EU while the rest of the UK left. But other than that, and David Davis reiterating that inside his head people's issues about immigration weren't xenophobic, you know, I guess it's just that people are scared of foreigners. Other than that, we really haven't learnt anything. Meanwhile, over in China at the G20, Theresa May made a statement that she would be rejecting using a points-based immigration system, presumably because in the UK our tradition is that points mean prizes, and that could get quite expensive. Actually, Theresa May probably really rejected it because she'd much rather, instead of a points-based system, just have a big van with a billboard at arrivals at airports telling people to fuck right back off instead. Theresa May also warned that Britain had some difficult times ahead, and I guess she would know, as she'll probably be responsible for most of them. Former UKIP leader Nigel Farage said he was disappointed in May's statement about immigration, but let's face it, no one gives a shit and most people can't wait for him to die. Nicola Sturgeon has called for a coalition of MPs across the UK who agree to support staying in the single market, as that may stave off another Scottish independence vote. Though personally I think there's nothing that'll incite an indie vote too, like seeing just how frustrating it is to try and get anything done with politicians from England and Wales. And first in this week's countries that think we're a bunch of chumps is Russia. Surprise! Putin didn't want us to Brexit after all, and in fact Putin's Deputy Prime Minister has said that Europe is weaker because of the Brexit vote, and that even Russia would have liked Europe to be strong. Presumably because it's far more fun challenge for Putin to crush something that actually fires back, rather than something that just lies down and points to where you should put your boot. And second in countries that think we're a bunch of chumps is Japan, who presented a 15-page report at the G20 summit. 15 pages, that is already more than anyone at the DEXEU has typed up. And the report asks that the UK stay in the single market. It also states that Japanese banks will leave London if it doesn't stay in the single market, as will many Japanese pharmaceutical companies. Having been to Japan, I can't really believe they have so many companies here in the first place. I can only assume it's so that all the people that work there can write home with things like, today the train was delayed by 33 minutes, and all their relatives can take it and make it into a hit Japanese comedy show. More Brexit fallout next week where I'll probably be saying things like, yes, still no idea about anything, and somewhere like Mongolia or Guam will probably have sent us a 10,000 word essay about why British people are the stupidest. This week I asked you what human car crash and perpetual dignity black hole Keith Vaz should do now after he's had to step down as chair of the Home Office Affairs Committee uh, after his own home affairs interfered with his office. Okay, it doesn't quite work, but you know what I mean. I'm tired. Anyway, uh, you guys gave some corkers. Uh, at Christine 200 says, well, he seems to have lots of fun as a washing machine salesman. Maybe that could really work for him. Uh, and at Radio Skewen's gone for a similar line, saying instead of selling washing machines, perhaps he could run a laundrette, as he seems to have a fair bit of dirty laundry. Nice. Uh, John Rain has gone for a combination of that, uh, along with Keith Vaz's kind of... Uh, 
ulterior life. Uh, Confessions of a Washing Machine Repairman. I'm not sure who on earth would ever want to read or even worse, watch that. Um, at Altuk uh, has said that he should be a popper lobbyist after uh, Keith Vaz's request uh, for those drugs uh, from the Tomb Hell escorts. Um, I mean, I definitely think there's a, if you know, I think he definitely understands what they do now. That could be quite useful. Uh, at Corporate Gorilla has uh, said that he should do Vaz Jazzling. They sequin here, they sequin there. Vaz Jazzle sequin anywhere down there. Um, at John Beck um, and... Uh, in fact, there's been a couple. There's been a couple along these lines, which I really like. Uh, at John Beck says maybe he should go into advertising. Hi, I'm Keith Vaz, and I recommend Daz. But who would trust his recommendations? Very few. Uh, Paul Jenkins similarly said, uh, "You know, a GIF inexplicably became Sith. Well, Keith can lead a new rebrand and take over the doorstep challenge." Similarly, a couple of people uh, went along these lines. Alexa D. Wilson said it could be editor of Viz. Uh, and Matt Kinson said he could work on a machine to compute all possible dick jokes that could ever be told, inventing the Vaz difference engine to accomplish it. Uh, at Nuncio2 says, well, before he was an MP, he was a solicitor, so soliciting maybe. Um, at Web Squirrel says he could guest host Have I Got News For You. I mean, Jesus, uh, considering the, uh, the, the the beating that Angus Deaton got from that after his scandal, uh, I think that Keith Vaz would last all of about 10 minutes. Then Sufi Boy says he could promote Vaseline. I don't want to know what that is. I'm assuming it's some kind of lubricant he... Uh, provides by himself um at chris porker webb has said uh, he could do vaz top tips save hundreds of pounds on expensive lawyers and career suicide by not inviting rent boys with poppers to your flat in the first place good advice chris porker webb and finally my favorite one from philip alexander i just like the sound of keith vaz does free jazz don't we all philip don't we all and that is all for this week's Partly Political Broadcast. Uh, as always, a huge, huge thanks to Mark Struthers for his sound, sound work. Um, he really does save this podcast every week. Please do check out his Radio Stockton Heath podcast on Podbean. It's great. Also, a big thanks to my brother, a.k.a. The Last Skeptic, uh, who's let me use the instrumental from his new single, Damn, uh, to go over the G4S bit. Go and pick that up from iTunes. Uh, also, please, please review the show on iTunes. Grab my new comedy special from my website. It's only £3 and has jokes in it. Uh, also, draw a picture of a magical horse and do a spit in the wind because if you angle it right it's pretty fun see you all next week this week's episode was brought to you by the letters and numbers g4s which is why several tin and duyebs were harmed during the making of this episode and one didn't even turn up hi i'm daniel founder of pretty litter Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.